In Riverside, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, October 18, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, taking up Unger's book, Archaeology in the Old Testament, pages 214 to 230, shows the questions 363 to 416, dealing with the Empire of Solomon. Now, do any of you wish to bring up anything from Friday that we didn't finish before we go on with today's material? All right, missionary, what is it? 361-362, why? What action did David take in connection with the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, he brought it to Jerusalem from where it had been before. And you realize that um, well, there's a history back of it. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle. And this was movable to the tent, but it was finally fixed at a place called Shiloh. And uh, Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines, which is mentioned only obliquely later in the Old Testament, but archaeologists found the ashes of the fire. Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines about the year 1050. The Ark of the Covenant, evidently, however, was, was saved out, was rescued from this, and was not destroyed, because it's mentioned uh, numerous times after this. Now, this was put in various different places. Uh, David built a temporary shelter for it at a place called Nob, and uh, the high priest was there for a while, and then uh, it was in different places, and finally at a place called Sidgath-Ziah. And uh, David thought it should be in the national capital, and he made elaborate arrangements with a big program and uh, special features and everything, and had the Ark of the Covenant move from this place to Jerusalem and put it in the tabernacle which he set up for it. This would be a replacement for the original tabernacle made in the time of Moses, which would have been the pretty far gone from ordinary wear and tear by this time, even if not destroyed by the Philistines. So, uh, you see, there was the original one, and then David made a replacement for it in Jerusalem. So later, this was replaced by Solomon's Temple, which was a permanent uh, type of structure of wood and masonry. That's 360. Now, 361, what light has archaeology shed on a garment called an ephod or ephod? This is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. It is evident that it's a um, vestment or part of a costume of the priest, and especially the high priest. But uh, no place does the Old Testament explain exactly what this was, although it's quite obvious this is something worn by the high priest. But uh, Assyrian cuneiform text and Ugaritic text, that's uh, those dug up at Rashama in northern Syria, have shown that originally, way, way back, this was simply an ordinary garment, a definition or a covering of some kind. And later, as used in the Bible, it had become a religious vestment. And 362 was, one about that one too? 362, where did David place the ark in Jerusalem? Answer, in a tent prepared for it, which took place of the original tabernacle made in the time of Moses, which had evidently been destroyed by the Philistines at Shiloh about 1050 B.C. Now that brings us to where we stop, I think. Is that right? Did we go beyond that?
All right. Uh, 363, and this is where we should start for today. What has archaeology shown as to the possibility of a tabernacle such as that described in Exodus being made by a migrating people in the desert? Did any of you see the um, scale model of the tabernacle and the grounds around it in the Geneva Church? Dr. Wright preached on it once, and Mr. Rudd, our blind student, went up afterwards and spelled it all around. Spelled everything in it. Got his idea of it that way. But um, it's a very fine replica, and it's there. And you've been in the Geneva Peace Church, there's a place there that has a big glass case with the old communion ware in it. And there's a little stairs right beside that. And you just go up there into a little platform, and there it is, spread out. It's about only twice as big as this table on a plywood base. And it gives you quite an idea of what the Everything makes a scale, and based upon the specifications contained in the book of Exodus, there's quite a piece of work. And you can see it any time the church is open for services. And you don't walk in the middle of the sermon and go up in and look at the, uh, the tabernacle, which is uh, not the kind of thing to do. Um, <clears throat> it was claimed by liberal critics, you see. You name something in the Bible that they hadn't raised objections against, and I'd like to know what it is. But the liberal critics that as long ago as the time of um, Moses, say uh, 1300 or 1400 B.C., people weren't advanced enough to make such a, a sanctuary for worship as the tabernacle, with the specifications as are given in the book of Exodus. And well, how do you answer people like this and make a claim like this? Of course, in the first place, there, that kind of a claim, that people weren't advanced enough, that's the same kind of thing as saying Moses couldn't have written it because writing hadn't been advanced. Same sort of an idea. This is based upon an assumed evolutionary framework that religion and everything else with it developed gradually from the crudest fossil beginnings and by 1400 B.C. had not advanced far enough that uh, they could have done something like that. Now that's... Um, pretty hard to believe in view of more recent discoveries in those countries. The beautiful jewelry found at Ur of the Chaldees from 2500 B.C. would be considered a masterpiece of craftsmanship anywhere in the world today and would grace Tiffany's window in New York. Beautifully done. Handcrafted. Gold and other precious jewelry. So to say that people in 1400 B.C. were not advanced enough to make a religious tabernacle or a temple worship, is, uh, they just pull that out of the sky. Now, as a more positive answer, records from the 14th to 11th centuries B.C. have shown that it was possible. It was done other places. This wasn't the only tabernacle that was built. And these records contain many of the technical terms found in this connection with the tabernacle. So you can write that one off as far as anybody claiming that it couldn't have been done is concerned. Now, 364, what has archaeology shown concerning the color of ancient Semitic religious tents? And I wonder, and this is Johnson, what color were their ordinary tents that they lived in? Black. Don't ask me why, but they were black. In China, you know, the color of mourning is white. It's put on white somebody has died. In this country, black, of course, is the color that symbolizes mourning for, for a death in the family. All right, 
that the ordinary religious central black just had the practical advantage they didn't have to spend money on detergents to keep them clean. You couldn't even see the dirt if they were black anyhow. Black. And uh, we read, however, in archaeological discoveries about religious tents uh, in other cultures than that of Israel that uh, had a were made of red leather with a domed top. Red leather dyed, of course, to, to, to be made red. And uh, this, of course, doesn't bring Bible today for some reason, but the statement of Exodus 26:14 and 36:19 it speaks of the tabernacle having a covering of ram skins dyed red. So um, this covering would not be only over the top, but an outside uh, protection all the way around of ram skins dyed red. They would have these so that the hair on them went downwards, and this would shed any occasional rainfall, which they didn't have to worry about too much anyway. Now this brings out the idea that um, all that elaborate description of the tabernacle runs through many chapters in Exodus, while certainly revealed by God, was not, um, let's say, completely new and detached from previous traditions. What God enacted here was something which was also common to the Semitic religious heritage and which had been used, at least parts of it in some ways, uh, in other uh, tribes or nations and other cultures. But it was the thing to do. He built a religious tent for worship. It has certain things that are typical of it, and some of those are incorporated into the instructions which God gave Moses, which then have back to them the mandate of God to go ahead and do it this way. To say that God commanded it does not require us to say that the, the idea was previously unknown in the work, or nothing like it had ever been done before. The theology of it was different, of course, but um, the, the structural features may have been, many of them, uh, common to Semitic religion before the time of Moses. Does that uh, Mr. Brown uh, seem to rock your faith in? No, you can uh, allow for that, all right? I think we should. Solomon, when he built the temple, he employed, there was nobody in Israel that had the, the architectural know-how to build that building. He employed Phoenician craftsmen from Tyre and Sidon to do it. But you can be sure he didn't um, employ the professor of the University of Tyre to come down and instruct them in theology. The theology of it was from God, but the architectural know-how of how to build this affair he got from the Phoenicians. And that, there's no reason why he shouldn't do that, although Underholds, he did too much of it, he did so elaborately. Now, um, David's connection with the organization of religious music, First Chronicles, three chapters in there, 23 to 25, David organized um, choirs and musical guilds. And David, of course, a thousand B.C. Here again, critics have claimed that this couldn't have been that long ago. Notice how, how short their vision is. And archaeology has opened up a tremendous vista long uh, before that. It's, uh, said right on this. In 1000 B.C., uh, well, uh, according to Willie's little book, this is modern man. The archaeology deals with the modern man. Uh, so there was a long history before that, and uh, quite a bit is known from Egypt and other places. Uh, who is the first mention in the Bible of used musical instruments? Sarah, who was it? 
Civil King, yeah, he was uh, not exactly a cubby and wasn't a Sunday school boy either, but uh, he uh, was the uh, pioneer of invention of musical instruments. And don't read too much into that. What he had was probably pretty elementary, but uh, somebody had to do the first work along that line, you see. Now, uh, also from times before the time of David, from Egypt and Syria and Mesopotamia, we have considerable evidence of music, and not merely that some individual could play, but music on a somewhat organized basis. And Unger goes on to say that um, David evidently uh, took over some of this talent from the Canaanites. You know, they hadn't killed them all off, and finally it seems they absorbed what were left of the Canaanites, and they and absorbed them. But the Canaanites were a musical people. Suppose those are Canaanites down there on the chapel platform? <laughs> well, they're musical anyhow. What, do you, what, what style of music do you call that? You call that rock? Blues. Religious blues? Blue, all right. They pretty blew me out of the chapel. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I I could appreciate it better if it wasn't quite so loud. I really think I could. My eardrums were really uh, vibrating with that. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I'm too old to appreciate it fully, maybe. The Canaanites, however, excelled in music and had musical guilds, and it's interesting to note that um, some of the names in the heading of the Psalms speak of people who are known to be a Canaanite family, and presumably became believers in the Lord. I don't think they'd have written inspired psalms in the Bible if they weren't. But um, originally, way back, of Canaanite origin, Heman the Ezraite, this is one, I think First Chronicle 2.6. Now, it goes beyond this. There have been found literary and stylistic parallels between some of the Bible psalms and some of the Ugaritic findings. Not too much, but some very striking ones. For all thine enemies, O Lord, for all thine enemies shall perish. This has been found almost word for word at Yudarit or Rashama. For all thine enemies, O Baal, for all thine enemies shall perish. You just put Baal in instead of Yahweh or Jehovah. And uh, a number of other parallels like this of the style. Another is the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> between the biblical literature and the... the uh, Plus, some or you the regular should the six, seven letters. There's six things which the Lord hates, there's seven that are an abomination unto him, or a similar construction to that, the six, seven, or seven, eight letters. Seven things um, that um, are strong on the earth, and eight that are powerful when they're going. Things like this you read in the book of Proverbs, a number of places. This is exactly parallel to the, the form of statements. The six, seven, or seven, eight ladders, it's called, found uh, quite frequently in the Canaanite literature. And this simply means that, um, as no doubt, uh, Moses took over the letters of the alphabet invented by the Canaanites, presumably, or the Phoenicians. He also, or later writers, some of the psalmists, took over the, the uh, structural form of pattern that has been found in Ugaritic literature. But the content that they put into that is that of revealed truth, uh, compatible with all the revelation of God in the Holy Bible. 
so that the resemblance is purely formal. And some people have objected to this. They say, look, if there's anything at all barred from the wicked Phoenicians or Canaanites, this destroys the inspiration of the Bible. I wonder if Mr. Jonathan does it. Well, uh, you can think of you think any reason why it wouldn't. Does Paul ever quote pagan authors? His writings? Paul quoted the one on Mars Hill, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, then again, uh, in the letter to Titus, he quotes the Cretan poet. Cretans uh, are always evil beasts, slow bellies, and so forth, that one, one of their own poets says. Now, uh, truth is true, whatever you find it, the quotation from a pagan source under inspiration it simply means the Holy Spirit led Paul or David or whoever is in question here to pick up this little item from whoever it was that had originally said it, and it is included in our Bible by divine inspiration. And this is not contrary to uh, the idea that the Bible is fully the inspired word of God. Now, Unger uh, comes to the conclusion that the Psalter spans Old Testament history from Moses to Malachi, contrary to the claim of some critics which hold that um, David wrote only a very few of the Psalms, and that most of them are very late. Uh, the evidence indicates that there are Psalms from all periods. David wrote more than anybody else, and so they're commonly called the Psalms of David, but um, he is not the sole author of the Book of Psalms, and some of them are from, um, certainly from later periods. Some of them almost certainly from the time of the Babylonian captivity. It describes some of the described scenes of the Babylonian captivity. Now, I come down to David and Solomon. I think we noted last time as to how it was that um, David and Solomon could build up and maintain an empire for um, a considerable period of time, two reigns here, 40 years each. There's the best part of 100 years in there. How, how would it be, Mr. Harris, that these two men could do this without um, joining up with the Viet Cong or something? Well, God helps them, but God often works through uh, human means, too. Now, um, anybody remember that? What it was? All right, Mr. Stump. Yeah, at this time, the great powers, namely Egypt, Babylon, and the Hittites, and Assyria, um, over the major league, they were all uh, taking a rest, fought out. Taking a breather, getting ready to fight again, of course, but uh, not doing anything for the time being. So here was a break. David and Solomon could hardly have done this. Of course, God can do anything, but looking at this from a human point of view, they could hardly have done this if, um, let's say, the Hittites or Assyria had been campaigning through that area trying to build up their own empire at the same time. It wouldn't have worked. They were, humanly speaking, at least certainly no match for them. But everything was quiet here, about 1100 to about 900. The power of the great empires, especially Egypt, Assyria, and the Hittites, and Babylon offstage in the background, was in eclipse. And also, Unger points out, David and Solomon and were fostered in exception or two, did not fight aggressive wars. They were attacked and fought back and conquered the people who attacked them, and in this way, added territory. Uh, city-state of northern Syria conquered by Solomon. What was it? 
Paul at this moment. It's A.M.A.T.H. And it says in the record in the Old Testament, he held territory from the entering in of Hamath to the river of Egypt. The brook of Egypt. That doesn't mean the Nile. That's the wadi that marks Canaan up from Sinai. Yeah, Mr. Nair. Hamath? I don't know. Well, I said maybe there was an exception or two to that. I don't have all the information. I don't think the Bible gives it all. That was a general statement, and it can be substantiated from a number of cases where uh, they were attacked or threatened with attack and then fought back. And uh, But as to this about Hamath, um, I don't think it says, and so we'll have to leave that one in doubt, perhaps. But anyway, this was um, an ancient city. It was a fortress. It had been a powerful fortress of the Hittites at one time. A great deal of Hittite stuff been found there among the ruins and fortifications. And uh, 120 miles north of Damascus, this is way up in northern Syria, it says in the Old Testament record, he conquered or he held territories from the entering in of Hamath to the river of Egypt. This would not seem to include the city of Hamath. Entering in of Hamath, this would be the uh, East Gateway or something of the territory of Hamath. But uh, Hunger seems to hold that, he, that the evidence indicates he actually captured and held the city of Hamath. And on the other end of his territory, the, the uh, river of Egypt, when used in that way, does not mean the Nile, but the commonly called Wadi or Brook of Egypt, which was uh, at the border between Egypt and Palestinian territory, and which had water in it in the winter and springtime, and in the summertime usually not intermittent small streets. So this does not mean that all this uh, tremendous tract of country was incorporated by Solomon into his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom was simply the twelve tribes of Israel. But uh, this was uh, vassal territory that recognized his suzerainty or overlordship and entered into treaty with him. Some voluntarily, some as a result of war. And then would pay an annual tribute and Solomon, on the other hand, would be obligated then to defend them against all other enemies. You see, in Old Testament times, um, there were very few small countries that could go it alone, just as Belgium in the modern world has repeatedly been attacked and overrun by either Germany or France, one or the other. And so uh, the small countries could hardly go it alone, and it was greatly to their advantage to line up with one or other of the great powers this was sometimes the result of conquest, sometimes it was simply the result of agreement. And then in this way they would lose their technical independence. On the other hand, they would pay an annual tribute and be left pretty much to manage their own affairs after that. But if attacked by an external enemy, the country with whom they had lined up was obligated by the treaty to come to their defense and defend them against all others. So it had a mutual advantage. They sacrificed their nominal or technical uh, independence, but in return they got a real value received for this. And this uh, certainly doesn't mean that Hamas and, and all these places were part of the kingdom of Israel. They were vassal states that paid a tribute and recognized Solomon as their uh, general protector and overlord, Chris David and then Solomon. Now a number of places are mentioned, H-A-Z-O-R. I used to pronounce that Hazer until I learned better. It's pronounced Hathor. And an accent on the last syllable, Hathor. And uh, northern Palestine, Solomon fortified this to 
if the people of Damascus from entering this country to do damage. Easy and Geber is at the other end of things. We should have a map here to do this properly. Easy and Geber, north end of the Gulf of Aqaba. See the, uh, the um, Red Sea branches into Hawaii at the northern end. And there's the Gulf of Aqaba on the east side and the Gulf of Suez on the west side. Gulf of Suez, where the Suez Canal was later built. The Gulf of Aqaba is on the east side, and the present-day Republic of Israel tapers down to a narrow point at the Gulf of Aqaba. This is their contact with the Red Sea, and from that with the Indian Ocean. That other contact, of course, with the Mediterranean on their own sea coast. And this, it was necessary for Solomon to hold because the um, unfriendly Edomite king, Hadad, <coughs> had the nastiest habit of blocking the highway that went down there. You know, we've had trouble from in um, West Berlin, from the Russians, blocking the Autobahn that goes from Western Germany to West Berlin. And the one time we had to run an airlift for two, three months there, you can know it's coal in there by airplane. But they would say that Autobahn was out of business for repairs when everybody knew it was in good condition, and and uh, the Western powers, Britain, France, and the United States couldn't use it. A very, um, oh, this is uh, provocative kind of an action. And the Edomites, past whose territory the King's Highway went, that ended up at the, the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba, when they got to feeling their oats, they would uh, block or, or cancel out the King's Highway, and Israel was denied access then to uh, port on the sea at the Gulf of Aqaba and, and consequently to uh, all that part of the world. The canal having not been built yet. So uh, this was this was necessary. Now, um, how did Solomon keep foreign nations and subject people friendly to Israel? He had a gimmick that I don't recommend to anybody, but he had <laughs> Well, uh, Mr. Johnson, you look intelligent, highly so. What was this gimmick? Yeah. Would you call this scandalous? Well, it doesn't come up to the highest standards of Christian marriage, let's say. Uh, if you think that Solomon, who had uh, 300 wives and 700 uh, substitutes called concubines, for a total of around a thousand, did this out of love or romance, Think again, it couldn't have been. How do you fall in love with a thousand women? <laughs> I miss some people's attention. <laughs> How do you do this? And this was a well-recognized plan in ancient times of sort of stitching up the peace on the principle of you don't fight your in-laws. Or do you? We aren't supposed to. And uh, so most of this was presumably political rather than romantic. If you want something about romance in Solomon, look at the Song of Solomon, which is on a different kind of a plane entirely from this business of marriage to all these women from different countries. If we wanted to um, really um, stop the Vietnam War, according to Solomon's idea, has President Nixon got one daughter that didn't marry yet? They both married? Well, he had one a little while ago. Fisher, wasn't it? Yeah, before she got married. 
And O.J. Mann of North Vietnam is dead, but he had a son. Now, the thing to do would have been to marry Christian Nixon to the son of O.J. Mann. This is stuff the Vietnam War. <laughs> a little hard on the young couple if they don't take a fancy to each other, but um, on the other hand, this was a recognized way of doing things. Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. All right, this steals off the southern border. Pharaoh is no gentleman and has no code if he can attack us after a thing like this. What's the use of marrying Pharaoh's daughter, I ask you, if it doesn't uh, bring some real uh, political benefits and fringe benefits along with it, like this? And so this was a recognized practice. Now it's scandalous from the God-given point of view. If you think of the divine ordinance of marriage, it's certainly monogamous, but God created one Adam and one Eve, and there wasn't any personnel or any triangle uh, at all. And this is certainly the ideal, and, and what is right. But uh, we're dealing with realistic events here. Solomon's um, outfit here, while scandalous and absolutely excessive from every point of view, is not a world record. There were kings and emperors in his day and before and after that had a bigger establishment of women that they were married to than Solomon had. So um, we cannot say that he won the World Series on this matter of multiple matrimony. Although he did uh, do a great deal of it, which he shouldn't have done. The first was the daughter of Pharaoh, and later on numerous others. They brought idolatry with them to Jerusalem and planted the seed of endless trouble in the period that came later. Now, um, there's a city here called, uh, uh, let's say this worked, worked politically, but had bad religious effects. Uh, well, now this is one of the. Were you one in one of my classes in Bible 101? You weren't, so I'll uh, talk to you now. Uh, there are three evils in the Old Testament that um, are temporarily tolerated that uh, strike us as scandalous slavery, polygamy, and divorce, of which they had an extremely free and easy type. And divorced his wife because she burnt the toast, maybe, or something like that. And uh, these three things, all three of these, if we're dealing with absolute right and wrong, we'll have to say they're wrong. Polygamy, for instance, is contrary to the creation ordinance of marriage. Surely it is. And slavery, now really, how can you regard your fellow man as a commodity to buy and sell? How could this be right, really, now? And uh, divorce is certainly also, at least in the form that they had it, contrary to the uh, original ordinance of marriage. Now then, uh, it's one thing to say that these things are wrong when judged by the absolute moral standard of the will of God. On the other hand, they were common in society at that time and were not regarded as wrong by, let's say, even the best people of those days and uh, conscience hadn't been developed on this yet. And let's say God tolerated these things temporarily, pending the time when they could be abolished. Now, let's say God went to work on these three evils in the Old Testament period with a double-pronged attack. In the first place, there's a series of fabric of legislation about them in the books of Moses, which keeps them within limits and eliminates many of their worst features. It wouldn't be any fun to be a slave anywhere in any period of history, but if you had to be one, you'd be much better off in Israel than in Greece or Rome, for example, because the slave was recognized as a human with a soul and was uh, religiously your brother, 
and had rights, and the master could be punished for abusing a slave. This was not true in Rome. The man threw a slave tied hand and foot into a pond of lampreys that ate all the man-eating fish, ate all the flesh off his bones and killed him in a few minutes. And what for? For stealing a piece of chicken meat from the pantry. The slave had no right. He was a piece of property only. A chattel. In Israel, the slave was a human and had rights. So there's a whole fabric of laws about all three of these institutions that, that curbed them and limited them and actually eliminated some of their worst features. And then, on the other hand, the real answer to any social problem like that is not the ultimate answer, is not more laws, but better people. And God, meantime, is the first curbed it by the law, then goes to work on the people with his spiritual grace, his written word, and his prophets and their messages, and the influences of his spirit to raise the people to a higher plane. This is the real answer to a problem like that. You don't need to worry about the laws. You get the people to be what they ought to be. When you come down to the New Testament, polygamy has vanished among the Jews. existed among the Greeks and Romans, but not among the Jews. Slavery, apparently, also. You read about Jews being slaves, but not about Jews being slave owners in the New Testament. And divorce they still had, but had developed a conscience on this. It was a moot question. There were two schools of thought on it, liberal and uh, strict, uh, named for two learned rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. And this was a keenly debated moot question. This explains why people came repeatedly to Jesus and asked what he had to say about it. So you see, this was also on the way to some kind of elimination. Now, I think uh, the mere fact that laws were made curbing these evils does not imply, as some people said, that God condoned the evil. But God is a realist. Uh, he recognized the evils existed and could not be instantly eliminated simply by a prohibitory law. And therefore, he curbed the evils and then went to work on the people. Does that help you any on that? I think that's a, a fair and truly biblical perspective on this. And don't quote me as saying it's all right to have more than one wife, because this I do not hope. <laughs> all right, now... Um, the information here about Gezer, Gezer was a city that the Egyptians had held, Solomon got it along with Pharaoh's daughter, this was part of her dowry, and um, taxes, 382, paid in produce, not in money, if money was used it was not coins, but silver that was weighed. Now we come to a real question, the Arabian camel, domesticated when, according to Unger's book. Twelfth century would be the 1100 BC. This would be um, just before the time of um, of King Saul, who became king about 1050. Now the bind here is the Bible speaks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob having camels, and uh, many archaeologists have held that this must be wrong. That the later writer projected this back into the early history when he wrote it up, and he was used to seeing camels around, so. He wrote up the story of Abraham and put in that Abraham had camels. But actually, there were no tame camels, according to modern thinking on this, until about 1100 uh, or 1000-something B.C. 11th century being the 1000s B.C., time of Psalm David. And then the camel was domesticated, and there began to be this uh, lively uh, caravan trade back and forth between the Nile and the Euphrates rivers. Now, um, 
in answer to that. I don't think Unger's answer is fully satisfactory. Dr. Free, if we can call it his book, and he gives a better answer to it, but uh, there is evidence that the camel was domesticated long before this, but that the camel caravan routes hadn't been established long before this. That the figurines of the evidently tame camels have been found in Egypt and, and so forth in eight to nine hundred years, almost a thousand years before the time of Solomon, uh, some of them as early as 3000 BC, but that the actual commercial use of the caravan to run a truck business, you know, operated by the Teamsters Union, this had not yet begun until about the time of David or Solomon. So uh, you can still hold that the Bible is correct without uh, necessarily uh, holding that the caravans existed that early. Now, uh, 386, we're going to have to move fast if we're going to finish this year. 386, the uh, camel trade uh, brought wealth to Solomon's kingdom. Uh, he was Jewish, you know, and had a keen sense of the value of money. And uh, this was pure gravy for Solomon. Here's his trade between Egypt and Anatolia, or Asia Minor. It's got across his country. That's the only practical way to go. It's a natural. You put up a toll booth at each end of the turnpike and collect the money. Collect it coming in, collect it going out. And uh, he charged a customs duty or a tariff on horses and on chariots. And uh, this uh, brought in a large amount of revenue. There's a passage there that um, is obscure in the King James Version. It speaks of linen yarn. This is in... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, 28 and 29. Horses which Solomon had had were brought out of Egypt, and the king's merchants received them in droves, each drove at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, 600 half ounces, and a horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. Now, uh, Right in this passage, it speaks of linen yarn, and uh, this is translated droves in the Revised Version, American Revised Version, and Unger suggests this word Q-W-H doesn't mean either droves or linen yarn, but it's the name of a place, and the place is Q. Now, how do you pronounce K-W-Q-W-H? How would you pronounce it? <laughs> well, Mr. James, can you pronounce Q-W-H? No, there's no vowels in it. But uh, this apparently uh, would be pronounced as if it were spelled K-U-E, Q. A place in Cilicia, not very far from the hometown of the Apostle Paul, Mr. Mary. Hmm? It's a toss-up. Uh, very likely, Unger is correct, and the King James Version and Revised Version are mistaken. But this is the name of a place and doesn't refer to the droves of horses nor to the linen yarn that went along with them, but to, to the place where they came from. Apparently, the chariots came from Egypt and went north, and the horses came from Asia Minor and went south. That's apparently the meaning of this somewhat obscure matter. Uh, Egypt was famous for the best chariots, and Cilicia, southern part of Asia Minor, they produced the best horses. You know, uh, Samuel Johnson, that edited the first English dictionary, he didn't like the Scotch, and 
He always rubbed his end of the scotch, and he put his definition of oats in his dictionary. Oats is a grain used by horses in England and by men in Scotland. And somebody asked him, yes, Dr. Johnson is quite correct, and this is the reason why they have such fine horses in England and such fine men in Scotland. <laughs> I came back at him on that. Now, uh, Solomon's chariots and horsemen. How many chariots and how many horsemen is he said to have had? Fourteen hundred, how many? Twelve thousand. The horsemen took turns using the chariots, apparently. Twelve thousand horsemen. At Megiddo, stables to house four hundred and fifty horses and a hundred and fifty chariots have been found. Yeah, near Megiddo. This would only be a fraction of his total force. You know, back in Moses' day, when God uh, ordained the law of the kingship, uh, there's two or three ground rules for the kingship. When you people go to get a king, this is the way you got to do it. You've got to be a member of your own people, not a foreigner. He has to be a student of the Word of God. He has this book of the law and read it day and night. He shall not greatly multiply horses to himself, and he shall not greatly multiply wives to himself. Now, let me point out, Solomon certainly violated both of those last two counts. I hope he lived up to the first one, the second one, about reading the scripture. But he certainly violated both of those. However many you say it means when it says not greatly multiply, Solomon exceeded the limit. And that's for sure. And horses were used in Old Testament times for war only. They were never used for transport or for riding. For riding, people use donkeys for short trips and mules or camels for long trips. They were stronger. And horses were used only for war, usually for pulling chariots in which there would be an archer or bowman. Later they had cavalry that rode on horses, but in the early period it was mostly to pull chariots. But the horse was a war animal only at, uh, in Solomon's day, long after and therefore, this command of God is a command against building up a big armed force. Now, he was allowed to have an army. You can't be a king without some armed force at your disposal to maintain order and so forth. But to build up a big militaristic establishment was forbidden. This is contrary to the kind of faith in God that a man like Solomon or David ought to have. And uh, certainly Solomon violated this one, both of these, about the wives and about the horses. Now, it speaks of Solomon's fleet going to get gold in Ophir. Does anybody know where Ophir was? Well, this was probably on the east coast of Africa somewhere, or the southern part of Arabia, probably Africa. And it says that Solomon's fleet took three years to go to Ophir and back. This would be, uh, well, they counted any fraction of a year as a year. This would be one full year plus a fraction of the year before and a fraction of the year after. It says in the Bible, Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights, actually from Friday evening to Sunday morning. We wouldn't call this three days and three nights, but they did the way they counted time. It was part of three 24-hour periods, which is about figured. So this would be... Uh, taking it um, in that way, this 
trip of Solomon's fleet to get gold and other exotic products, a year and a half. Needless to say, uh, he didn't have any jet planes. These are ships and they go slowly. A year and a half. And Solomon brought back to Jerusalem ivory, apes, and peacocks, all exotic uh, zoo and park products or exhibits. He certainly uh, made Jerusalem a different city from what it had been before. Now, the word Tarshish occurs here. It speaks of ships of Tarshish. Ships of Tarshish. And Solomon uh, had ships of Tarshish. What is the meaning of this word? This is something where archaeology has really explained something. Well, uh, in the first place, uh, Tarshish is often said to have been a place called Tartessus in southern Spain, not far from the rock of Gibraltar. It's also been claimed to be a place in the island of Sardinia, just west of Italy. But uh, and people thought ships of Tarshish were big ships, ships big enough to go to Tarshish and back. In other words, it could make the trip from Palestine to Spain, the length of the Mediterranean, and back. Or the ancient Phoenicians even had ones that could go clear up to England and uh, the other way down the coast of Africa as far as uh, Dakar, where Africa sticks out farthest into the Atlantic. But more recent research has shown, almost certainly here, that um, this word is a common noun, not the name of a place, and it means uh, smeltery or metal refinery. So, uh, let's say, uh, U.S. Steel has a great big Tarshish in uh, Midland, Midland downtown here. This is a steel mill. would be called a Tarshish in the Old Testament. And ships of Tarshish were those that went to the places where these facilities were and took the ore or brought back the product, uh, carrying on this trade that ships owned mostly by the Phoenicians. Now, uh, Solomon's principal export was copper. And Solomon's copper, let's say, refinery and the equipment for casting it has been discovered in the, um, the Araba, the uh, depressed valley, south of the southern end of the Dead Sea. And scraps of copper and molds that he made things with and so forth, uh, quite a good number of supplies found in this place. The King James Version says, in the plain of the Jordan, this is the Wadi Araba, or the empty dry valley, uh, the deep depression south of the end of the Dead Sea. The Queen of Sheba who came to visit Solomon. Where was Sheba and where did she come from? And was this a romance? Didn't you see the film, Solomon and Sheba? Listen, was there any flirtation in that film? Say there was. In the biblical account of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, was there any romance or flirtation involved in this? According to the Bible. Certainly not. This was a royal visit on a high plane similar to Queen Elizabeth visiting the late President Eisenhower. Suppose he caught her back in one of the drapes and tried to kiss her or something? <laughs> of course not. Now, where was Sheba? You think he did? No. <laughs> All right. Sheba was probably what is today called Yemen in the southern tip of Arabia. My son was there in the U.S. 
embassy and had to leave in a hurry and lost all his all his personal property, all his hunting trophies and photo album and camera and everything, Polaroid camera, uh, communist coup instigated by Egypt. They all had to get out in uh, one less than one day's notice, all the American staff from there. Yemen has been a trouble spot between Egypt and Arabia. This is probably where she came from, and modern archaeology has shown that Yemen has an ancient and highly developed civilization. It's just a rather crude hot spot today, a terribly hot climate. But um, in Solomon's day, this was really something. 